0: Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. A bit later, we'll feature a conversation with the legendary Fab Five Freddy. But first, and I really have to tell you, I hate to say this. I really, really do. I'm tired. Lately, I've looked back on my own personal journey through this life, and tried to put it in a context where I hoped the world would be at this point. I have to admit, I'm a bit disappointed. But most of all, I'm tired. I'm tired of constantly watching people deny reality in pursuit of monetary gain and power. I'm tired of people acting as though the history of this country is theirs to distort, theirs to pervert. I honor the sacrifice of all those who have lost their lives defending nations around the world. Yet at the same time, I'm tired of war. I'm tired of governments sacrificing the future by creating armies of mostly young people who fight and die for countries that don't always respect their sacrifice. I'm tired of those who think the election of a black president and vice president means the stain of racism has somehow been washed away in America. Come to think of it, I'm tired of sexism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, anti-Asian hate, and all the other isms and phobias that divide man and womankind. Put simply, I'm tired, and I expected better. I've been thinking a lot lately about the kind of world I thought we were building by protests in the late 60s and early 70s. And Keep in mind, I was relatively young back then, late teenager. I thought a world without poverty, racism, and war was doable in my lifetime. A lot of other people believed exactly the same thing. Many were close friends and, of course, family. Thing is, we believed. We didn't understand, unfortunately, the nature of our opposition. We didn't know that people were more than willing to stop using the N-word in polite company, but were just as willing to use institutional power to keep systemic isms and phobias intact. When it finally dawned on us that the world was not prepared to change, many of us, myself included, retreated to a world where, at least for a little while, we felt free. Many of the places we did this in were underground dance spaces and parties. They were hosted by people who understood the pain of dreams that were thwarted before reaching full flower. The world we thought we were working toward was taken from us. And it isn't just these things that make me tired. Looking back, my generation lost many, many people who died before their time. Starting with the heroin epidemic of the 60s and 70s, moving into cocaine and crack in rapid succession, and then the AIDS epidemic, my generation hardly had time to catch our collective breath. And the pain this time was deeper, deeper because we lost our friends. Visiting a dear friend in an AIDS ward and realizing that nurses would not come near him because at the time they believed AIDS was transmissible in the air. That realization stunned me. I was equally stunned when a friend who I knew was HIV positive told me he was going to try to infect as many people as possible before he died. I never knew if he was really serious. He died two weeks after he told me AIDS snatched away the lives of some truly creative geniuses, most dying well before their time. Heroin, cocaine, the same thing. And it seemed as though we were powerless to do anything about it. There was some mitigation when in 2008, Barack Obama was elected president. In retrospect, we should have known better than to think any politician could speak to the change we wanted to see. And maybe there were some people who thought that that change was going to come through Barack Obama. I was not, unfortunately, one of them, because by that time, I was pretty cynical about politics and politicians. Now, to be fair, Barack Obama probably came closest to helping to create that world. But during the eight years he was in office, other things changed. The rise of social media had both good and bad points. But by the time Obama left office in 2016, I began to think the bad outweighed the good. And then, just when I thought it was time to relax and enjoy my so-called golden years, a grifter was elected president of the United States. It seemed surreal, but Donald Trump's elevation to the highest office in the land suddenly made real the idea That old battles fought and won would have to be fought all over again. They were for four long years, and not before enormous damage was done to this country. More than anything, the Trump presidency made me tired. The use of social media to spread disinformation on a mass scale made me tired. The insistence by a substantial minority of Americans that Trump won last year's election makes me tired even today. The slow erosion of civil discourse where people can agree to disagree makes me tired. The world that could have been may never happen as our inability to tackle climate change, despite the extraordinary work of young activists like Greta Thunberg, And Shie Bastida is beaten down by fossil fuel special interests. And all of this, all of it, has made me tired. So too has the daily prospect of opening Facebook to see another friend, yet another friend, or an acquaintance, has passed away all too soon, regardless of what killed these folks. And I mean some really, really good, solid people. And it seems as though almost every day I look up and someone else is gone. One of my mentors, the great Percy Sutton, the founder of Inner City Broadcasting, once said to me, and I was we were at a function, and I walked up and I said, Hello, Chairman Sutton. How are you doing? What's going on? And he turned to me and he said, Mr. Riley, I've been attending far too many funerals lately. And I realized now that he was saying to me in his own way that he was tired. And that the people he knew and the people he nurtured and the people who benefited from his hard work were dying before his very eyes and it troubled him. As it troubles me now that there are so many people, certainly I have not had the impact that Percy Sutton did, but many, many people I have known throughout the years are no longer here, passed away too soon. I'm tired. Up next, Naomi Osaka and the Cone of Silence. Will the tennis star's decision not to do press at the French Open open the door for others to follow suit? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. You know, there's no doubt that Naomi Osaka is one of the world's great tennis players. Her father was inspired by the story of the Williams sisters. And in fact, Naomi's older sister, Mary, played for a time, ending her career earlier this year. Yet Naomi is making news not just for her exploits on the court, which are already the thing of legend, and I believe she's like 23, 24 years old, but she's getting known for a stand she's taking off the tennis courts. She's decided not to do any press during the French Open because she wants to protect her mental health. Where have we heard this before? Mental health issues in prominent, prominent people. Prince Harry, for example, comes immediately to mind. Keep in mind, this young lady has already won four Grand Slam titles, meaning the $20,000 per news conference fine for violating Grand Slam rules is chump change to her. Reaction among players appears to be mixed, with some applauding her stance, while others say meeting the press is part of the rules. And the rules ought to be followed. The mental health of athletes is something that's not often discussed. And when some in the past have decided not to cooperate with the media, the judgment has been harsh. Harsh by who? Who else? The media. In this case, the players aren't just obligated to meet the press. They have to do it 30 minutes after the end of a match. Is that enough time to compose yourself after a match you may have lost? Perhaps not. Yet beyond that, the attitude that it's part of the job may warrant some serious scrutiny. Now, I worked in media for a very long time. I've interviewed thousands of people. I know that if an interview subject hasn't had time to compose themselves, I won't get the best conversation I could have. Perhaps giving the athlete more time might help. I know this. The tennis powers that be can ill afford to ignore Naomi Osaka's issues regarding mental health. French tennis officials have called her decision not acceptable, but that does not seem to faze her. And in fact, she may have expected it. But there's another way to deal with mental health and the media. Somebody needs to tell Naomi Osaka that she can take command of any conversation she has with the press. If the issue is being asked a certain question over and over, and I've heard that that's part of the problem, not just with her, but with other tennis players and other athletes, there are three words that can stop media from asking the same thing over and over again. Those words are asked and answered. They usually give a journalist the not so subtle message that a person has had enough repetition. Athletes like Naomi Osaka can set boundaries, which the press will learn to respect. A straight-up press boycott can have ramifications that are long-lasting. Like it or not, the media is the window through which the public sees the soul of an athlete. Does media sometimes go too far in badgering athletes at the wrong time? Of course they do. Should athletes have to bear mental health problems in private, Of course not. Could this be the point that tennis makes changes for the better? Mm -hmm. Perhaps. Perhaps and perhaps not. You know, uh, people who say rules are rules, uh, sometimes they end up being virtually immutable until somebody takes a stand. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Muhammad Ali... Was drafted into the United States Armed Forces. And he said he wasn't going. And he said, I'm not going someplace to fight on behalf of the United States when the United States has never, ever done much for me and my race. And at the time, he was vilified, he was crucified by the press. I mean, to a level that you can't even imagine, those of you who weren't around at the time. There were some athletes that stood up for him, people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, people like Bill Russell, people like Jim Brown. But in the main, people simply judged him and judged him very harshly. Yet, years later, the stand he took became understood. It may not have led other people to resist the draft, but it certainly created an image of Muhammad Ali that people in 1966, when he rejected going into the service, could not have imagined at the time. And then there are those who ask whether Naomi Osaka's decision not to talk to the press will give her an advantage on the tennis court. This is very interesting that people are thinking, well, you know, if she doesn't have to deal with the press after a match, maybe that will help her competitively. If she wins the French Open, which she has not done yet, who's to say it wasn't a smart move? When we come back, a conversation with the legendary Babby Freddy. This is The Intersection. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your boy, Fab
1: Five Freddy, and I'm live and direct home in Harlem. Tuned in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection, is live, y'all.
0: Tune in. Welcome back to The Intersection. My guest has worn so many hats that he really defies a simple description. He's the man who brought Uptown to downtown and brought it back Uptown again. He's the original host of the groundbreaking Yo! MTV Raps. He's made films, both feature and documentary. He is the legendary Fab 5 Freddy. Freddy, how you doing, man? Wonderful, Mark. Great to be with you again,
1: man. It's been a long time, and I've followed your work for many years, and... Now I'm
0: realizing that you've been living over in England. You've been moving across the pond. Across the pond. And you've had many triumphs across the pond, man. You have legendary status over here. So you know yeah, what I'm it's saying? It's been a blessing. I loved England. They were they were some of the first people to,
1: to tune in and understand all this, the beginnings of all this hip hop, urban culture, street art. Um, so it's, I've had a great connection with,
0: with the homies over on the, in England <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> on the other side. Yeah. Let me start out by asking you um, a little bit about the development of your aesthetic, because your dad was part of a very unique group of Brooklynites that included your godfather, the great Max Roach, who I had the honor of interviewing several times. Oh, Uh, man, you just touched the heart. Yeah, so tell me about how that informed your aesthetic later on in life.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it was a big influence on everything I've done. Um, Growing up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where my dad also pretty much grew up and he was childhood friends with Max Roach. They came up together. They both, I guess, went to Boys and and Girls High back then in the, you know, early decades. I don't know it was in the 30s or whatever it was, but they were young homies, buddies, smart Brooklynites. Max went from drum and bugle corps into becoming in big bands and then broke out with the revolutionary guys that created bebop, which included Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Max Roach was that drummer in the mix. And my dad and was like along for the ride when Max blew up and became the biggest thing, you know, one of the part of the biggest movement in music, That's those guys would come to Brooklyn to hang out with Max and then Max would turn those guys on to my dad and his crew My dad was kind of like an intellectual uh, centerpiece. He had read a lot of stuff. And these guys were super smart, super concerned, trying to make changes like we still are to this day, but they were very revolutionary, futuristic thinkers. And my, my house growing up was sort of like a think tank where some of the hippest activists, progressive people in Brooklyn, people working. in. And when I was coming up, they had all them anti-poverty um, programs after all the upheavals in the 60s and 70s. And so I grew up absorbing energy from all of that. Um, just as a kid running around the house, playing with my toys and G.I. Joe, I, I realized as an adult how much I picked up of what Max and my dad and his friends would talk about globally, the world issue affecting black folks. And so those things rubbed off and inspired the moves that I would make. Um, That's
0: my underpinning a hundred percent. I gotcha. Funny you mentioned uh, Max Roach being in the drum of Corps because he told me He was, I believe, in the Concord Baptist Church. Yes. 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 And I, ironically enough, marched in several drum and bugle corps, including one in Brooklyn called St. Rita's Brassman. St. Rita's Brassman. Oh, boy. You know, um, growing up as a kid in Brooklyn,
1: they used to have this holiday called Brooklyn Day. Brooklyn
0: Day, absolutely.
1: And they marched down Stuyvesant Avenue. And as a kid, a, a parade, I guess school probably got out early. And the drum and bugle corps, all the church, all the big churches had, they would march and play drums and march and play drums with a lot of flavor and a lot of rhythm, of course. And so that was a big, exciting thing that's no longer exists. But I remember my dad and them used to tell this legendary story about Max marching somewhere. And the story was that Max threw his drumstick up so high that they crossed under the Atlantic Avenue L and he caught the, the, the drumstick on the other side was the story. And it was, of course, it's probably like urban legend, but it was a circul- It was a story that was popular in Brooklyn at that time, that that's how bad Max was,
0: you know? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Course, you managed to bring uptown hip hop uh, to downtown punk rock and the art world. How did you... Break that new ground. I mean that that it's a while back now, but I mean, yeah, nobody was really thinking along those lines. All of these different things—disco like and hip hop—and they all had their own silos. And you suddenly, did. here you come bringing these things together. How did you do that? Well, once
1: again, it's back to ideas that I learned from my dad and his friends, what they talked about. Pretty much that, well. It was more the idea that people in Europe would be open to this, to ideas of black culture in a more receptive way than had been the course in America. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was open to that fact, and then my dad had all kind of information and in periodicals in the house, magazine subscriptions, of course, Ebony and Jet, covering black. News and affairs, but Time magazine, Newsweek, New York Times, other popular magazines, Rolling Stone, like. So somewhere in there in those mag in those publications, which would always be in the house, I would flip through them as a kid. I remember reading about punk rock and this new wave revolution, which initially was coming out of England and mm-hmm. with bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols, and then connecting with bands coming up in the New York scene like the like the ramones and blondie among others mm-hmm. and the fact that they were doing this revolutionary rock and roll music going against the more established rock groups and it had they just had very radical open ideas and reading in between the the lines i had been getting ideas about what we were doing in the urban situation Hip-hop at that time was complete, was still almost 100% street thing. The graffiti was going on and there was no love towards what I saw was a developing art movement. I began to make a connection between what graffiti was doing and what pop art and other art movements had did just because I had access to all this information as a kid. And I thought, well, what I'm reading about some of these punk rock and new wave people, they'd probably be open to some of these ideas Mm -hmm. about graffiti being looked at as art, this new type of thing going on in the streets with DJs cutting and scratching and just rapping could be looked at as a new kind of music. I just and so I was able to figure out a way. So I went to Meggivers College in Brooklyn for a couple of semesters in the late '70s. Got to work at the Meggivers College radio station, and had an idea. It was I was d- discovering the like the early days of dance hall reggae. And the energy of that, I was a buddy I was going to Meg Evers with, who was really hip to it. We got a chance to get a half an hour, once a week radio show on on WNYE radio, which was just starting and they had a big strong signal. Mm -hmm. We got this show and I was a guy named Glenn O'Brien that wrote for Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, who wrote a music column in the back of Interview that would talk about everything from dancehall reggae to funk to punk rock and new wave in a very knowledgeable way. I was a fan of his column, I reached out and, and invited him to be uh, come to our radio station so we can interview him to talk about reggae and stuff. And he did that. Mm-hmm. And when I was walking him back to the train station, I pitched these ideas I was developing that hip hop, this this new thing, which didn't even have a name, but I felt like there was something going on that was equivalent to the energy of punk rock. There was a visual art that went along with it. He loved all of these ideas, invited me to be a part of what was this cable TV show, which was called Public Access. These are the channels that they allow people in the community to just do whatever they want. He had one of these TV shows And he invited me, he said, man, I'm gonna start a cable TV show. Two, three months later, I got a call from him. And he he remembered, he invited me to come and that's where I connected with uh, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry from Blondie and the cream of the crop of the New York underground punk rock new wave scene. Mm -hmm. He would interview all these people because he knew everybody. And he invited me to be a guest on the first episode. I ended up becoming also a cameraman on the show, and I got in the to same the show on the same show, Glenn O'Brien's TV party. You can go on YouTube and see some clips. Jean, this is where I connected also with Jean Michelle Basquiat. We had met a, a couple of months prior, but we became friends as as we were all plugged in into this really cool network of people that were making it happen in that underground culture. Like after TV party, we would go hang out at the mud club and cool places downtown that attracted Mm -hmm. this crowd. And that's how I made my inroads into that scene. Uh, They were a very supportive audience. They brought my work as well as Jean-Michel's work. And I guess one of the big things that comes out of that connection was turning once again, Debbie Harry, Christine, the, the the main members of the group Blondie onto this music culture. I'd play them early hip hop tapes and talk about these ideas of how I think this could be a big thing. And they believed in me. And then they went and made a record called Rapture. Rapture. <laughs> and I dropped my
0: name in the record. And that went number one all over the world. So. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Jean-Michel Basquiat. And the other person I know that you associated with pretty closely uh, was Keith Haring. Yes, Keith Haring, Jean-Michel, we were,
1: we all met as I really got my feet under me, made connections with other people on that downtown cultural scene. And I saw they were very open and receptive to my ideas. I began to make moves and Keith Haring, Jean-Michel were other people, obviously Jean-Michel I mentioned, but Keith was hanging out as well. And we became really good friends. We, we met, we both were in an art show that was in a former massage parlor, which really was another <laughs> name for a whorehouse in Times Square at the time. This was the old gritty grimy New York City. Mm-hmm. And this former um, basically whorehouse The owner of the building had turned to given it to these artists to have an art exhibit, which was called called the Times Square Show, which was a big exhibit with dozens of artists. I got to take part in that show. And that's where me and Keith Haring met and became close friends. He was a fan of the graffiti going on. And when he met me and Lee Kenyonis, he was like, wow, man, he just was super excited. And we both became
0: close buddies. Yeah, it's interesting. I I met him at the Paradise Garage back in the ah. day. Before. He was very well, close to Larry Levan, who I was very close to. Wow, but,
1: I didn't know that. Well, I'm the guy that took Keith to the garage for the first time. Really? So I had been. I had buddies that I grew up with. Um, I, so the garage, as you know, was largely a gay club. But I believe Friday night was Friday a nice night was straight. Was well, it was a nice mix. It was yeah, straight yeah, and yeah. and gay. And to get in, you had to, a member, if if, if you didn't have membership, uh, you would wait outside and ask a member, would they please bring you in with them? I think members got to bring in two or three guests. Yes. That's how we got in. Um, and I discovered, this is growing up in the hood, of course, most of us were very hom- homophobic at that time, not really having been around gay people. We just had these stupid ideas. And so these people that I was friends with were not gay, but they were like, "Man, this is one of the best parties." So I went along, and saw like, "Yeah, these people are cool." But there were some hot chicks, you know. The big <laughs> secret—the big secret about the garage, as you probably remember, was if the girls that went there saw that you weren't like homophobic, being there meant that you probably weren't. You got to talk to some of the hottest, coolest, open-minded women.
0: Oh uh, yeah, on the, the New York scene. New York probably in America and it's funny too true um because my introduction to that whole scene was at the loft which oh, was man, well, you remember? really you went to the see I missed all of the, the loft yeah, David Van no, the, the that was the two places were my second homes but the first wow. time I went to the loft yeah um it was a, a couple of gay guys took me okay and they sat me down beforehand and they said look this is what this place is about it's not all gay, but if you got a problem with gay people, forget so, I asked you to come. Right. I said, look, no, no, no problem. And it was a whole different world to me. And then later on, in about 1979, 1980, a very close friend of mine named Joey Llanos, who now does the garage reunion parties, uh, and David DePino. David DePino, yes. I took. Joey to the garage the first time he went, and I gave him the same lecture that they gave me. <laughs> wow. I said, Listen, man, you can't come here and be homophobic. This is not yeah. about... Because I knew Michael Brody. You know, I knew the people that worked He was the there. owner,
1: Michael Brody,
0: yes. Yeah, and Larry, you know, I had known Larry through some people that used to hang out in the loft. because uh, Larry and David Mancuso used to be very close. Yes. So, you know,
1: there's a great documentary called...
0: Maestro. Maestro, yeah, and you can Absolutely. see it
1: on YouTube. Young kid in the early 2000s, a young Latin kid, made this film. Somehow, got my contacts. Either he emailed or called, and I was like, "Who are you? What are you talking about?" But he described this film, and he he messaged it. He messaged it up to me. It was okay. a rough cut, but it was almost finished. I was blown away at this film caught a lot of the sensibility. There's raw, there's real footage from the yeah. garage. It That footage was from that final weekend marathon party, actually. So it went throughout that entire weekend. I didn't want to go because it was so sad that, and, you know, the reason it closed, as I'm sure you know, was AIDS was ravaging a lot of people. Yeah. And Michael AIDS. got sick. Michael was sick and a lot of the people in that network. And um, so that... That film captures it if you want to get a a sense of what that club was like the documentary maestro about the product's garage. But I want to just tell you, so what happened was Keith and I were very good friends. Mm -hmm. We were both working, making art, visiting each other's studios, trying to figure out a way in to, you know, to get our work seen, and we'd love to party. And Keith was hearing about this club. And I said, man, I had been a few times. Keith was gay, but he wasn't like, you know, we were very close friends and Keith was like, man. So I said, well, here's how we, do it. We went on a Friday night, waited outside for some people, asked some people to would, would you take us in. It changed Keith's life. Literally, yeah. we had an incredible time. Later that week, Keith went, met with Michael Brody, explained who he was, his work, because Keith was just becoming this big deal in the artwork. It was just about to happen when he introduced himself, told him about his work. They kind of connected and literally the next time I went to, to the garage of two or three weeks later, Keith had done a mural in that opening yeah. lounge Remember, he had done his little characters all around that like upper portion of the wall. And then Keith got connected with Larry, then I got to go up into the DJ booth, which was <laughs> the equivalent of the VIP room. In the, once again, also in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a popular genre of music in England called garage. And, you know, they pronounce it a little different. And it was a popular thing. And, you know, they would come up with different genres of dance music all the time in England with new names. And I remember talking to somebody, I said, can you really explain what garage is? He was (laughs) like, oh, it's something that came out of New York, out of a place called the garage. I was like, wait, (laughs) you mean the garage? He said, yeah, the the garage, that's how you say it. So literally that whole genre of music was inspired by the paradise garage. Garage. It it had a
0: lot of long reaching impacts. And uh, to be honest with you, the club scene today owes a lot to oh, Larry and some of the early people that started. Now, yeah. I want to ask you, Freddie, about this BBC piece that you did, uh, A Fresh Guide to Florence. What was yes. that about, how did that come together? Wow, so
1: that's, once again, um, so the filmmaker uh, that directed that doc, David Shulman, is an American that lives in England, He's made. he makes, documentaries and has made several for the BBC. Um, About five years ago, he came to New York. He was doing a documentary on Jean-Michel Basquiat. And, um, you know, people that that do the research know that Jean and I were close friends. We were contemporaries. Sadly, Jean died really young, but his work, his continues and his legacy just continues to grow as this giant of uh, modern art. He wanted to make a film. I was reluctant about being in it, but he offered to, he knew that Jean-Michel and I had similar backgrounds. We both were from Brooklyn, same age, and we both used to go, spend a lot of times going to museums. So he Mm -hmm. offered, he said, I knew you and Jean-Michel used to go to the Met. You actually called it your museum club, what if I told you the Metropolitan would let us film you recreating that vibe? So in this documentary about Jean-Michel, which was called Jean-Michel Basquiat, Rage to Riches, this documentary that this filmmaker did, which I, you know, my big scene was walking through the Metropolitan, talking about art, kind of in the way me and Jean-Michel would do, because we both knew a lot about art history, just as kids figuring it out. So everything from, Caravaggio, Michelangelo to Jasper Johns, Jackson Pollock, and everything in between. We had a broad knowledge of art. We'd go to the Metropolitan, but we recreated that in this documentary that he made, which ended up winning the BAFTA, which is the British Oscars for the best documentary, the best documentary that year. So they wanted to do something else and they offered to, to, to do something with me where they would take me to, to do something on the Renaissance because I talk about these painters in art history, but in my kind of own flavorful
0: kind of fab way. And yeah, you know, it's that. funny you, you mentioned that because you seem to tie many of these iconic Renaissance figures to contemporary iconic figures. Was that something you thought long ago? Well, yeah,
1: well, it really was about the fact that when you're really into art history and you look at Renaissance painting, there's a lot of Black people featured, not in a stereotype negative way, Um, unless you, when you get the real history, it was a fascinating thing that who are these black people in the 15th century in Italy that are featured in these paintings. They clearly had to have been there, but Mm. we don't know anything. There's very little to scholarship about who were these Black people featured prominently in many significant Renaissance works of art. And I wanted to know more because there's not a lot out there for very specific racist reasons. So when I told him this would be more interesting to me to know about the Black people featured in significant works of Renaissance art, that would be, that became the idea that the BBC said yes. Let's follow his lead and let's make this film. So, if, I believe it was the um, it was 2017, um, 2017 going into twenty eighteen. That summer, we spent that whole summer back and forth um, information about people. The various images of black folks featured in these paintings and digging to pull out history and scholarship. One of the things that we found out in the research that's one of the Medicis, Alessandro de' Medici became the ruler of Florence in the 15th century. He was a black man, his mother was black. His father was, was, was a Medici, I believe Lorenzo, the Duke of Urbino, a prominent Medici, his son, happened to be this young black kid um, and he ruled Florence. It was probably the most important uh, black man that led a major Western country since Obama uh, or prior to Obama, that was him. And so it was a fascinating history that once again is little talked about or discussed. So that became the whole show, A Fresh Guide to Florence. And then we filmed in many places in Florence. And then we also went to Venice. And we saw some um, paintings there that featured black folks from that time. And we connected those dots and gave you a sense of that history. So a fresh guide to Florence with Fab Pop Freddy. You can go on the BBC iPlayer and yeah. see this uh, documentary film and get some of the information that's rarely just discussed that black folks were in that time period and what were, were living and thriving in Venice and Florence and doing things that we're not really told about.
0: Now, I gotta tell you, Freddie, you have ideas have been popping through your head and been uh, translated into reality many, many times over now, better than four decades. How has the pandemic affected your ability to bring those ideas to fruition?
1: Yeah, well, the pandemic was a traumatic, shocking, terrifying, um, thing to live through and I guess here in New York which in, the, in, the, in America we got hit extremely hard we, yeah. we were the we were the hardest hit it was a, a I mean unbelievable like huge tractor trailer trucks refrigeration morgue trucks were parked outside of all the big hospitals if if you left your home and drove past and just got a glimmer it was literally terrifying so the first few months were just numbing then it just began to th- fall into a groove with the different uh, technologies that aided connection and conversation and plotting and planning, which I'm always doing, figuring out how to get, you know, I'm still actively making, making art. I exhibit my uh, paintings and I've got film projects that I'm working on. And, you know, I don't know if you got to see this film that I directed, that um, dropped on Netflix two years ago. It's a
0: film about the history of cannabis in America called Grass Is Greener. I never saw that, I don't think. Now, I I have seen a couple of cannabis films and I might've seen that one, but I didn't know it was yours. Well, this film, if
1: if if, if this helps you remember, but if not, please watch. The, the, The idea was to tell the history of cannabis through its connection to America's music, okay. so it starts with the fact that the that Louis Armstrong, uh, the most influential jazz musicians, were aficionados of cannabis, um, and then what led to its criminalization were racist in America did not wanna see that this music brought whites and blacks together. Together. And racists didn't wanna see that happen. So they created what we called the whole reefer madness scare campaign to scare white people, they said if you smoke this plant, it'll make you go insane. There were motion pictures made. One called *Reefer, Reefer Madness. Madness*. I saw and it a dozen, was, times. <laughs> a dozen I times. It was comedy when I first. Saw it, it was comedy when I was going through high school. We would go outside, smoke, and watch this film and just laugh our heads off because it's so completely stupid. But this film terrified America and was a part of the campaign that got cannabis criminalized in 1937. The yeah. man who led that campaign was a guy by the name of Harry Anslinger, kind of like a J. Edgar Hoover type, who yeah. uh, basically was the first narcotic czar, and it was 100% for reasons of race that cannabis became criminalized. And then it was black folks that were the bear the brunt of the criminalization since 1937. But all people in cutting edge creative music through jazz, into rock and roll, into all kinds of popular music, especially hip hop were advocates for this plant. And then when I realized that a lot of the biggest hip hop people I introduced on the show, I hosted Yo MTV MTV Raps, Raps. which was um, Snoop Dogg, uh, Guys from Cypress Hill, Method Man, Red Man, made numerous songs about the, the joys of cannabis. They helped push it to a new generation. In the same way, numerous jazz artists made songs about cannabis. Cab Calloway, Fats Waller, Louis Armstrong. So the film... Takes you through the historic timeline of seeing cannabis enjoyed by these artists, hearing the various records made, but then showing the criminalization and the imprisonment of Black folks. So I look at both of these topics. So we've got Snoop Dogg in it. He will have you laughing and falling on the floor with with laughter, telling stories about his first time smoking. But then you get, get to see like a Black man from, Luke, Louisiana, who was given a sentence of 13 years in prison for two joints of cannabis. He served seven of years of his sentence. So we focus on this man and his family. And it becomes this emotional moment in the movie when this family breaks down and explains how horrendous this is. That man's name is Bernard Noble. And what I worked on during this pandemic is I actually have created a cannabis uh, brand that will soon be on shelves across America in this man's name. So, really, his name is Bernard Noble. The cannabis brand is called B Noble, and we have we made a a, um, a business arrangement with one of the biggest cannabis companies in America. It's a company called Cureleaf, which is I've heard of it, him. Yeah. So they're also known as an MSO, multi-state operator, because each state that has legal cannabis has their own laws and specifics. So there's a handful of big companies that can operate in every state and lots of little small operators. We were able to make a deal. And the product that we're going to release is a two joint pre-roll reflective of what he went to jail for and served seven years of a 13 year sentence. So the messaging about what this product? So we're going to take care of that, brother Bernard, and also donate a significant portion of the proceeds to organizations that are fighting to expunge records. Because we've had tens of thousands of mostly people of color imprisoned for nonviolent cannabis offenses. They all need to be freed, and all of the records of those that have gone through this need to be expunged. In New York just voted a month ago to legalize cannabis and we have the most progressive cannabis legislation in the country it's all the business aspects won't kick in for two years there's specific aspects of the legislation to address people of color to make sure that we get a significant uh part in the business and also monies uh will you know of course They're expecting a lot of tax revenue, but also a significant portion of revenue will go into the communities most affected.
0: That's absolutely brilliant, man. It is so brilliant you're involved in that project. We're just about out of time, but I want to ask you one question about hip-hop, because if anybody knows this, it would be you. (laughs) Do you think hip-hop still has its edge? And what artists do you think are nurturing that edge? So... With hip hop, which is remarkable that it is
1: the world's most popular listen to music is a mind blowing fact. On the streaming services across the board, it's amazing. Um, Particularly older heads from let's say our era, our you know, generation that's seen it from rappers delight and lived through public enemy and the conscious era. I like lyrics. I like lyrical content, people that play with the words in a masterful way, something that England has figured out with the grime scene and Stormzy and Numerous rappers over there who were initially I went to England and covered English rap when I was hosting your TV Raps groups like the London Posse were mm. big then, but they were all trying to do it in the American style and with the, the American swagger. England figured out their own style, their own swagger, and they're killing it. Um, the, the thing now, which is fascinating is it's not about radio and the big radio stations in your town anymore. It's Mm -hmm. about what streams and what playlists you're plugged into. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you google, you know, lyrical hip-hop, conscious hip-hop, literally those things and sites and names of rappers that are focused in that genre giving you some information Giving you some great wordplay, you know, it's 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 there. You just have to know where to find it. I think artists like Jay Cole, who I've worked with, I directed a gangster. Oh, I love team. his work.
0: I really, you know, I first heard Jay Cole. Um, what is the name of that song? Uh, the first big one he has years ago. Now, first big one was about his
1: first time connecting with a girl. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a clever rap where. It was yeah. his first time, and he was trying to get ready. Can't
0: get enough. That's the name of it.
1: Yeah, something. He was trying to get a, have a relationship with this girl, and he was talking about all the things that a young man, a young kid who's trying to have his first physical relationship with a woman, and it was so cleverly constructed yeah. because yeah. it turned out that, the, that at the end of the song that this, this girl was like, baby, it's my first time too. And it was just <laughs> so, so surprising and clever. So yeah. that's who he is. That's the way he gets down. He understands the business. And by the way, he loves playing basketball. He's now playing for a team in Rwanda. He's what? playing on a, yes. If you Google J. Cole, who's independent, but he loves ball and a and a R- Rwandan basketball team has recruited him. So I'm seeing the clips. So there's artists like him, there's artists like Kendrick Lamar that won a Pulitzer Prize for being yeah. able to, a young dude in his 20s to elevate the form and drop messages within his style of music. So there's a lot of artists when you weed through it that have the kind of content that I'm looking for. But um, it's just amazing that the hip hop rap thing continues globally as a voice. The, fast, the most fascinating thing for me is the voice of those that don't have a platform. Yeah. Um, affecting elections and politics in different places around the world is something that this music is still doing which is remarkable. I mean, a guy will just say something potent on a YouTube video, and that can go viral without, you know, and have an effect on the
0: consciousness of the people. It's still happening, so it's pretty amazing. It is amazing, absolutely. Freddie, I wanna thank you so much, man. This has been a real honor talking to you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to converse again. I think we should also let the folks know that we
1: were neighbors in the 90s. We both lived <laughs> right. in the same building. And so it was great. Um, Riverbank West, a building on West 43rd, 43rd
0: Street in Manhattan, Yep,
1: 43rd off of 11th Avenue, a pretty nice high rise where I lived most of the 90s. You were my neighbor. It would always be a great to see you because I was a fan when you were on WLIB. Oh, um, thank Doing, you, doing your radio it. thing every afternoon, I would tune in to you, man. It was good radio back then. It good. Glad that you're still doing it now. We're trying. Po- We're trying. Podcast space. Yeah, and Mark, this has been great, man. So good to connect with you, man. and Great that you're This is dope. This is epic. Thanks, Freddie. You're welcome, baby. Take care. Take care now. Please.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.